I've entitled this morning's message, God has not given us a spirit of fear. And then the subtitle to this morning's message is a biblical response to the first confirmed case of the coronavirus in South Africa. Perhaps before we even look at God's word, let me say to you that I had the fullest intentions to be in Genesis with you this morning. And Thursday morning in the very early hours of the morning, felt convinced after this news uh, 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 came to light that I want to help you because of my great love for you, that you would be equipped to respond to this issue biblically and not like the world is currently responding. That's my desire in this is to point you to Christ, that we will not go wild like many others are, but that we will trust Him. So I believe there's times in the season, uh, there are seasons in the life of the church, where we need to be wise and biblically respond to pressing matters that are happening in the world and even now in our own country. And I pray that God will be most gracious to us as we consider his word. Now, beloved friends, in order to do, to do so, I'm going to take you to three passages this morning, which will be the heart of our exposition of God's word. And the first of those then is 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Come with me as we read God's word. The Apostle Paul, just one verse, gives this instruction to young Pastor Timothy and he reminds them in the midst of his own circumstances, he writes, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now would you turn with me to the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, one of the passages I want to consider with you as well, we are reminded that we are citizens not of earth, but citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then finally, come with me to the Psalms as we turn to Psalm 46, just the first three verses. Psalm 46, verse 1 through to 3. The psalmist writes, God is our Refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Just so far, the reading of God's word. Pray with me as we ask God to be gracious to us. Father, we require wisdom. We confess our lack thereof. 
look around us, we see that it is so easy to be gripped by fear and to blow things out of proportion, even in such a way that it causes panic. We don't want to respond like that. Therefore, we ask for wisdom now. And we rest in that wonderful assurance that he who asks of God wisdom, God shall give unto him generously and without reproach. Oh, Father, we beg you now for corporate wisdom. Speak to us by your word, through your spirit, that Christ Jesus may be glorified. Amen. A biblical response to the first confirmed case of the coronavirus in South Africa. A tenacious clinging to the sovereignty of God and a solemn reminder that God has all things under control, never abdicating his throne or his rulership, never neglecting his people, and never once finding himself in a position where calamity, sin, or world affairs catch him of God. That gives a wonderful sense of peace unto the believer when circumstances arise that are possible causes for fear and even for panic. In the midst of calamity and catastrophe, the believer is called to trust in God irrespective of circumstances to live by faith and not by fear, for fear is the absence of faith. And to all this, the gospel presents to us the only solution to our fear, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of real wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10. Suffering, calamity, and disease are matters the scriptures speak of abundantly and it is crucial for the church that we have a biblical theology of suffering for if our theology as to this matter is correct, we will respond well in times of difficulty and calamity. Statistics show to date 3,386 deaths have occurred as a result of the recent coronavirus and its outbreak in China in December last year. To date, 98,424 cases have been confirmed worldwide of people having contracted the virus. It's been on everyone's lips. The country has been buzzing, especially since Thursday. And the world seems to be in a tiz, and it seems to just be spinning out of control as to this issue. And it could soon be that a nation is gripped by fear and that we lose track of the bigger picture. God forbid. And precious 
saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not wise at this time, we may soon find ourselves responding just like worldlings. But our citizenship is not on this earth. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, a new Jerusalem still to come. And therefore, even though the coronavirus seems to be like a dark looming shadow over the world, our hope is in Christ, who is greater and in control of the coronavirus. If ever a time has come in which believers need to be wise and prudent, then it is now. Can I remind you that social media is designed to create a buzz and to cause panic amongst people? That's what it wants. Within hours after it being made known that the first case of the coronavirus has been confirmed in Hilton, in KwaZulu-Natal, in South Africa, after a 38-year-old man had returned from an overseas trip to Italy with his family, every platform on social media was going wild with alerts, with facts, with fear, and with false reports. If ever a call for the church not to root ourselves in the alarmism of the world is needed, dear beloved friends, then it is now. Christians are not to give themselves to fear and to run rampant with panic and with alarm. Rather, the believer is at this time called to rest in Christ, to be wise and alert to not run ahead, to not make foolish decisions, and not to lose hope in a context where Jesus Christ is our rock. Jesus Christ is our permanence and our stability. At this time, we need to hearken his very words in Matthew 14. Take heart, it is I do not be afraid. Beloved, that would be true in spite of the reality we hear of around us. In spite of calamity, in spite of economic crises, in spite of world alarm and panic. The fact that Christ is on his throne remains ever true. Beloved friends, we need to be so careful that statistics are not exaggerated and are not allowed to paint a picture that ignores the reality of the overall and bigger picture. Let me help you understand what I mean by it. Statistics demonstrate 
that in spite of the fact that currently 3,386 people have already died worldwide from the coronavirus, listen to this now, 9,282 will die worldwide of hunger today. Three and a half thousand over the last four or five months have died of the coronavirus. Today alone, 9,282 will die of hunger. Statistics also show that 1.4 million deaths were caused by cancer this year. 175,478 deaths as a result of malaria in this past year. And it doesn't reach our newspapers. 447,000 deaths caused by alcohol abuse in the last year. I would propose to you that alcohol abuse is a bigger threat than the coronavirus at the moment. Horrifically, statistics show that 7.6 million abortions have been conducted this year. And over this, the media and even the church is alarmingly silent. 191, 845,000 deaths caused by suicide this last year. 241, 500, 241,501 deaths caused by traffic accidents. 2.3 million communicable diseases, uh, disease deaths took place this year. 150,467 deaths were caused by water-related diseases this year. 48,500 deaths will take place worldwide just today. 78 billion emails will be sent tomorrow morning. 4.4 billion users will be found on the internet today, whilst in a world population of 7.7 billion people, 841 million of those are undernourished across the world today. I think you can see where this is going. The media is blowing up the statistics of the coronavirus in such a way that other even more important matters are simply never dealt with and are simply brushed under the carpet. Nonetheless, as much as statistics are statistics, the question before us is how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to respond to what we are currently seeing and what our country is currently facing at this stage. God's word has the answers and to God's word we turn. Therefore, I want to start this exposition with, by means of a question. What is our Lord saying to the church and the world at large at this time? It would be extremely presumptuous 
to answer that question in a prophetic type of manner as if God had whispered in our ear to the issue at hand. Let me say that at first. Let me clarify what I mean by it. If anyone, and and I stress anyone, if anyone dares to say that God has said that he is orchestrating the coronavirus as a result of X, Y, and Z, such a person would be attributing to himself things God has never given to any man since the canon of Scripture has been closed. That's why the Scriptures warn us in James 3 verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. In other words, beloved, we dare not spread lies or make assumptions even from the pulpit and from the pulpit then say, say, thus saith the Lord. However, we do know that our Lord is full of grace and truth as per John 1 verse 14 and that at this time it is truth that really matters. Before we fall into the hype of social media or become guilty of speculating or even dare uttering lies, we can turn to the scriptures and discover the objective, plainly revealed truth which has already been made known to us by our God. So what do we know? If we can outrightly say, God has certainly not told us the reasons why he is allowing the coronavirus to spread even worldwide. If if that is our response, then what can we say? And there are a number number of things, and here's the first thing. We know without a doubt that God governs good directly and that he governs evil by means of his sovereign permission. Can I say that again? We know without a doubt that God governs good directly and that he governs evil by means of his sovereign permission. Nothing, nothing happens unless the Lord either permits or ordains it. Think think for example of God's servant, Job. We see in the book of Job that everything, every single one of the calamities that befall Job are as a result of the direct permission and ordination of a holy, wise and loving God. So also, the coronavirus is not without either the direct ordination or permission of our sovereign, wise, and loving God. Therefore, it would be wise to respond appropriately to the revelation of God's word. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. 
See, we do not know why it happens. We do not know what God's intended worldwide purposes are through the coronavirus. But there's a number of things that we very know well that are revealed through the scriptures. And here's the second one. The second thing we know subsequent to knowing that God allows both good and evil within the bounds of his sovereign permission. The second thing we know is that creation itself is subject to futility and frustration and that diseases, thorns, thistles, sufferings, heartache and pain all come as a direct result of the fall. Now that ties in nicely with where we'll be if the Lord spares us this coming Lord's Day. Beloved, we live in a fallen world. Our forefather Adam subjected not only every living being to the curse of the fall, but he subjected the whole of creation as well. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The coronavirus is the creation groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. As much as creation is groaning under futility as a result of original sin, we also know then thirdly that death comes to all because all have sinned. Romans 3.23 Let's state this emphatically. The scriptures clearly say that death is the direct result of the curse that came as a result of Adam's disobedience. We saw it last Lord's Day. If you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall surely die. just quickly take you back to what we've seen in the last two Lord's Days in the book of Genesis. We've seen that the covenantal relationship that God formed with Adam came with covenant stipulations. And that man was warned not to eat of a certain prohibited tree in the garden or else he would die. Genesis 2 verse 17. All die because Adam introduced death by means of willful and deliberate disobedience. All are subject to futility, hardships, death, disease, and calamity as a result of original sin. So here's the conclusion of this. Without original sin, we can conclude that there would have been no diseases, there would have been no runny noses. There would have been no heartache. There would have been no death. And without original sin, there would have been no coronavirus. We can say that emphatically. 
And we also know that, that God is supernaturally in control and that he has not given unto his people a spirit of fear. But he's given unto us a sound mind, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1.7. And if ever there's a call to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to, 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 to live and move within the bounds of the sound mind that God has given to his people, then it's now. He's given to us, Paul writes in verse 7, 7 Timothy 1, 7, He's given to us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Folk, that means we can remain fully confident that our God knows what He is doing. And that even though He may not necessarily disclose the very reasons as to why He sovereignly permits and even ordains certain things, that our God remains good, that He remains wise, and that He remains all-knowing. That we know. Secondly, I believe that at this time there is a call before us as the church uh, for the need to have our eyes firmly fixed on an eternal home yet to come. Turn with me again to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3 verse 20 we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things uh, to Himself. Some people suggest that we can sometimes be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly good. You heard that? Let me say to you, I think quite the contrary is true. We will never be of much use in this life until we have developed a healthy obsession with the next. I chose that word carefully. We will never be of much good use in this life until we have developed a healthy obsession with the next. I would propose to you that's the only obsession that is healthy. It's being consumed with the life that is still to come. Our only hope for satisfaction of soul and joy of heart in this life comes from looking intently at what we cannot see. Hebrews 11 verse 1. We must, in other words, take steps, beloved, to cultivate and to intensify in our souls an aching and a longing for the beauty of the age to come. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said to this. He said, labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world and labor to be much acquainted with heaven. Notice the word labor. Work hard. Sweat. To acquaint yourself with heaven. The consistent witness of the scriptures is that we should make heaven and its beauty the object of our contemplative energy. And when we do this, it will equip us for the difficulties and the struggles of the here and the now. 
You see, beloved, there is something about heaven that makes the anticipation of it profoundly life-changing. Because the essence of heaven is the vision of God and His glory and the eternal increase of joy in Him. Therefore, a contemplative focus on the beauty of heaven frees us from excessive temptation to focus on the things of this earth. You see, if there awaits you and me who have placed our trust in Christ and have repented of our sin, if there awaits us an eternal inheritance of immeasurable glory, then it is senseless to spend so much time and energy and money and concern sacrificing so much of what God has given us now to obtain for such a brief a time in corruptible form that which we are going to experience eternally in its consummate perfection. What an irony. We spend so much time on that which doesn't last, that our energies are not on that which lasts forever. We read in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are elected of Him before the foundations of the earth, before home affairs wrote you that birth certificate on the day that you were born, there is a certificate written against your name that declares that you are a citizen of heaven. And that one on paper then means significantly nothing in comparison to the one written in blood, the blood of the Lamb. And therefore, if, if our citizenship is in heaven, then it means that we ought to be governed now, not only when we're in heaven, we need to be governed now by the rules, the principles, and the values of that kingdom. It must be stressed, we are already citizens of the new heaven, we are already citizens of a new state, even though we haven't experienced its full consummation as of yet. So maybe let me state the different. If you are in Christ now, it means you are now a resident alien on this earth. You are a resident alien on this earth. You don't belong here. Secondly, a contemplative focus on heaven enables us to respond appropriately to the injustices of this life. I would encourage you, we don't have time unfortunately now to do it, but I would encourage you to read the whole of Revelation 18 and the whole of Revelation 19, where John describes the celebration that takes place around the throne of the Lamb and the shouting of hallelujahs that takes place there as saints and the myriads of angels reflect and meditate upon the manifestation of the righteous judgment and wrath of God. Contemplations, you see, on the glories of heaven produces the fruit of endurance this side of eternity. Beloved, the strength to endure present suffering is the fruit of meditating on our future satisfaction. I think that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, 18. 
when he says that the struggles and the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glories that will be revealed in us at the time of Christ Jesus. It's not worth comparing, he says. Don't even dare. Because the glory that is coming unto those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ cannot even be remotely compared to even the worst form of suffering you may think you can endure this side of heaven. You cannot compare it because that glory far outweighs it. You see, therefore, the reason that God's people don't lose heart is because we contemplate unseen, unseen things of the future. I think that's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18. And it's only when juxtaposed with the endless ages of eternal bliss that the suffering of this life becomes tolerable. Then and then only. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to fix our eyes upon heaven where our life with God is hidden in Christ. Listen how precious that is. Beloved believer, your life with God is, not is going to be, is hidden in Christ. It is. Therefore, contemplations of the heavenly glories sustain us in times of physical and emotional and spiritual trial. Isn't that a good reminder for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Even as we face perhaps uncertainties of a virus that has taken numerous lives thus far. Because when calamity and disease sets in, it is a comfort to think of that heavenly state where there is fullness of joy. Now follow with me on the screen. As I read to you a marvelous quote, once again, by Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is describing the state of heaven that awaits all who place their trust in Jesus. There shall be nothing in heaven, says Edwards, that offends the most delicate eye. In other words, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak, or sick, or broken, or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismayed, or degraded. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. Nothing grotesque or grievous, nothing hideous or insidious, nothing illicit, illegal or lascivious or lustful, nothing marred or mutilated, nothing misaligned or misinformed. 
nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious, nothing rancid or rude, soiled or spoiled, tawdry and or tainted, tasteless or tempting, nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanted. Watch now, none of it. And all this, all of this, for hell deserving sinners like you and me. Well, says Edwards, what will we see there? And here's his answer. Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness, purity and perfection and splendor and sweetness, satisfaction, salvation and majesty. We will see only all that is adorable and affectionate and beautiful and bright and brilliant and bountiful and delightful and delicious and delectable and dazzling. Elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful and glorious and grand and gracious and good and happy and holy and healthy and whole. Joyful and jubilant and lovely and luscious, majestic and marvelous, opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savory. Tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. Watch how he ends. And why? Because we will be looking at the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Well, that brings me thirdly and finally. Then as I want to end off with a reminder that God is sovereign and he is sovereignly in control of all things, even and especially those in nature. And for that, we'll consider Psalm 46 verse 1 through to 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swell. Come to verse 1 to 3, if you would open Psalm 46 with me. And I want you to see in verse 1, 2, and 3, the psalmist speaks to the sovereignty of God over nature. This psalm is a beautiful psalm. I love it. It's a psalm that encourages both hope and trust in God. It's a call for God's people to trust in Him, to trust in His power, to trust in His providence, even in the worst of times. It's a reminder, beloved, of the gracious presence of our God with His church throughout all of these times. You see, our God is not a distant God. Our God is not a God that is standing aloof to the problems of His people. 
But watch what the psalmist says. He says, no, our God is God with us. Then he ascribes that beautiful name to God, Emmanuel. Verse 5, the God is the God who is in the midst of her. God is in the midst of us. Unseen, eternal, glorious and beautiful. He's a God of grace. He's a God of provision. He's a God that is standing with his people in the midst of battle. Remember that this was one of the uh, songs that were sung during the battle time of the Reformation. And our forefathers who fought against the Roman Catholic Church and its false doctrine would, would sing this song, this song, in time of battle, reminding themselves, bracing themselves with the truth. Our God is not out there. Our God is here with us. Verse 1, the psalmist then alludes to the fact that God is both our refuge and our strength. Notice the personal pronoun that is used there, our. That means God is my and God is yours. And you and I can be assured of his very intimate, his everlasting and his personal care for his people. Even if God were to allow you, for example, to get the coronavirus. Then, and then also, you can be assured of his intimate, his everlasting, and his personal care of his people. And beloved, we need to remind ourselves of this this morning. We deserve the wrath of God. If God decides to give you or me the coronavirus, we deserve much worse from God. We deserve to be blotted out from the face of the earth. But in his kindness... He treats us in mercy, withholding from us his wrath and pouring out upon us the abundance of his overwhelming, never-ending grace. Like streams of living water. Not only that, but look at the psalm. God has also proven, says the psalmist, to be a very present help in time of trouble. He, he could have said God is a help in trouble, but, but he chose to qualify that. God is a very present help in trouble. That means regardless of what the believer faces, we can rest assured that God is in it with us. And that for purposes we may not always understand, God directs, God commissions, God allows, God decrees things to happen to his people for sovereign purposes that lead to God's glory and always lead towards our own good. Romans 8.28 in verse 2, he then uses the word therefore. You and I know that when a word like that is being said, it, it is based upon what, what uh, it is based upon the truth that has just been made known. So in other words, because God is our refuge and our strength, therefore, you see where he's going? He's saying it's precisely because of the faithfulness and the tested perseverance and the closeness of God to his people in times of adversity and trial that the psalmist can call the people of God to say, therefore, therefore, we will not fear. Now, that doesn't mean that we be stupid. That doesn't mean that we don't listen to the warnings. That, that doesn't mean that we don't wash our hands and that y y you get the picture. No, no, we're going to do that. But we're not going to fear. We're not going to allow fear to grip our hearts. Why? Because he's our refuge. And he's our strength. 
And it's precisely because of God's intimate presence with us in times of adversity, in life's shaky and painful trials, that the psalmist can write, we will not fear. Now look at verse 2 and 3. The situation that the psalmist is describing there is that of natural disaster. And I want you to note that he's arguing from what we would call, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. It's always a a wonderful uh, uh, means of rhetoric that is used to grip our attention. And and here's how he argues from the greater to the lesser. He paints a picture of tumultuous seas, of crushing waves and tempest winds. We see, literally, and I mean it's unimaginable, we see the earth shaking in Psalm 46. uh, Possibly, more than likely, in manner of unprecedented earthquakes. We see a situation being sketched there of absolute panic and catastrophic nationalistic disaster. Beloved, not our everyday experience. Not a flat tire or a bumped toe. The mountains falling into the heart of the sea. Not your everyday experience, but an experience frightful indeed. I guess bringing something like the coronavirus into this analogy would be quite appropriate. But now watch what the psalmist does then. After painting this picture of catastrophic nationalistic disaster, he points God's people towards God in whom alone is our hope. And watch now, even or particularly in times of great disaster. Here's what he's saying. Or or at least let me say, I think, here's the implications of what he's saying. Even if the sun were no longer to be in its orbit, even if the moon would fall out of the skies, even if the coronavirus wipes out all of mankind, The psalmist utters the confidence and the trust in the omnipotence and the unmatched sovereignty of Almighty God. It does not affect who God is. God is God and remains on His throne. By the way, that's precisely why the moon doesn't fall from the sky. Because God... Neither slumbers nor sleeps. You see, friends, if you look at verse 3 and you practically apply it, we could say, while earth dissolves and mountains rock and oceans roar and the coronavirus takes lives, God remains sovereign. It is in Him we live and move and have our being, and therefore we have no reason for fear or for panic, even when these types of things may come our way. Secondly, in verse 8 to 11, which we haven't read yet, there is an invitation in the psalm to rejoice over God's sovereignty. Come to verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, says the psalmist, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Watch now. 
be still and know that I am God. And that I will be exalted among the nations, that I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Having seen in the psalm that God is sovereign over nature, the psalmist now calls us to rejoice in the very fact that God is sovereign. There is a call here for us to come. Come and behold the works of the Lord, the psalmist says. We have an invitation here for the joyful citizens of Jerusalem, in in the immediate context, to go ahead and to view the remains of their enemies. As God leads them through battle, God invites them to see the remains of the enemies. Look at verse 9. Notice how carefully the providential dealings of our covenantal God is with his church. The psalmist writes, he breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. It's a picture of the voice of God calming the tumult of war, calling for the silence of peace, bringing all the attempts of the enemy to nil. It points in its final consummation to that ultimate day when Jesus will crush the head of the serpent under his feet That final day of victory, that day of his appearing, when every one of his enemies will lick the dust. Watch what God does in the midst of catastrophic nationalistic disaster. Where does he call his church to to this? Be still and know. That I am God. And that I will be exalted among the nations. And he ends this psalm with a reminder of the covenantal faithfulness of the one who made the covenant with our forefather Abraham. And he says to his people, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So, beloved, in conclusion, I trust you can clearly see we have no reason for fear. None. None whatsoever. That which God in love has predestined for his people is far more glorious than anything we will ever endure this side of eternity. And we are to comfort ourselves this Lord's Day with the wonderful words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian believers in in Romans chapter 8 when he writes, he asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then in verse 37 comes the answer, no, no. 
In all of these things, danger, sword, calamity, death, those things that he's just mentioned there, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, listen now, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Therefore, we are as Glenvista Baptist Church to remind ourselves this Lord's Day that even though approximately 200 South Africans will be brought back under quarantine this week to South Africa from China, and even though more than 3,000 have already died from the virus across the world, and even though the title of my message is actually appropriate because the subtitle was here, a biblical response to the first confirmed case. Well, that was true on Thursday. That wasn't true last night. If you're watching the news, there's now two cases. It was ironic this morning in my study where I thought, well, do I change the title or not? No, I just left it like that. So even though it's possibly even growing, even though 3,000 plus have died across the world, here is the reminder, nothing, precious believer, can happen to you or to me that ever falls outside the permissible and decreed will of God. Nothing. God will take care of us, no matter what the outcome. And in his providential dealings with his people, you and I can trust. And as much as there may not be a cure for the coronavirus, you and I can rest assured this Lord's Day that that which rescues us from the eternal wrath of God at sin has been fully taken care of in and through our Lord Jesus Christ who has conquered death, Satan and hell. If you are, however, here this Lord's Day and you do not know Jesus Christ, the coronavirus is the least of your worries. Because there is a God who will come and avenge himself on all who do not bow the knee to Christ. God sparing us from the coronavirus is his common grace. God delivering us from his wrath is his particular grace. And if the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart and you recognize that you are facing a greater problem, then call upon the Lord today, for he promises that not a single one who calls on his name shall not be saved. In other words, call on his name and you will be saved. That is a promise in which we can rest. Praise God that the greater problem, which is our alienation from God, that we are enemies of God until we bow the knee, that God has made ample provision for those who bow the knee in Jesus Christ, and in Him we can rest, and in Him we can rejoice. May God be glorified as you and I respond, not only to His sovereignty, but even to that which we see around us. We have no reason for fear, because our God is on his throne. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't say that lightly. We don't just choose words and say, well, God is on his throne. 
it, it's not a mantra we use or some words we say to kind of calm our fear. It, it is said with absolute certainty. Our God is on His throne. Oh, what a wonderful reminder that in the midst of a world that seems to be really just taking this thing perhaps even further than it ought to be taken, that, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called by the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabahoth. And he calls the church to be still and know that he is our God. Oh, our Father, we thank you so much for the peace that comes our way when Jesus is our Savior. We thank you so much for the comfort that comes our way when we know that nothing can happen to the elect of God that is beyond the decreed or permissible will of God, but that everything that happens to us comes as a result of your direct ordination and permission. So we rest in that. We rest in it even when we don't understand it. We rest in it even when questions come to our minds. We rest in it when the darkness of fear is looming at the door. Oh, help us to have our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.